Hello, and welcome to the Chest Journal Podcast. Today, we will be discussing an original research article to be released in the February edition of Chest, the association between volume of fluid resuscitation and intubation in high-risk septic patients with heart failure, end-stage renal disease, and cirrhosis. Today, I am joined by Dr. Rizwan Khan and Dr. Anita Reddy. Dr. Khan is an ICU hospitalist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. Dr. Reddy is a staff physician in the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic, Associate Director of ICU Operations, and Co-Chair of the Lab Stewardship Committee. And I'm your CHEST podcast editor, Dr. Gretchen Winter, an Assistant Professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Khan and Dr. Reddy. Uh, thank you so thank much. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Your study was a retrospective cohort study looking at patients with sepsis or septic shock with congestive heart failure, end-stage renal disease, or cirrhosis who were admitted to a medical intensive care unit. You looked at two groups of patients who received 30 milliliters per kilogram of intravenous fluids or more in the first six hours after sepsis diagnosis versus those who received less than 30 milliliters per kilogram. You found that there was no significant difference in the incidence of intubation between those two groups, nor were there differences in alive ICU-free days, duration of mechanical ventilation, hours to intubation, or hospital mortality. Now, these findings are interesting as many physicians are hesitant to give 30 milliliters per kilogram of IV fluids to patients with congestive heart failure, cirrhosis, or ESRD due to concern for causing pulmonary edema. What prompted you to study this? Yes, uh, absolutely. So initial fluid resuscitation for sepsis has always been a controversial topic. And since the landmark trial by Rivers, uh, aggressive fluid resuscitation has kind of become the standard of care. And the surviving sepsis campaign also recommends 30 ml per kilogram of IV crystalloids in the first three hours for resuscitation. However, there's little data to actually support this exact volume of fluid resuscitation, and hence compliance has kind of become poor. And it becomes even more complicated when the septic patient also has a comorbidity that will put them at risk for a volume overload, such as congestive heart failure and stage renal disease and cirrhosis, as you said. Now, clinicians often become concerned on the basis of this anecdotal evidence that since these high-risk patients uh, may not be able to tolerate uh, such fluid resuscitation, uh, uh, they might actually, if we give them the full volume of fluids that's recommended, they might develop respiratory failure. However, there really has not been any research that has actually looked at this question. And so that was the primary objective of our study, as to answer this very question, whether fluid resuscitation with guideline recommended volume was associated with a greater risk of respiratory failure requiring intubation compared to those who received less than the guideline-based volumes. Great. Now, you mentioned in the article that almost half of the patients in the study received less than 30 milliliters per kilogram of crystalloids in the first six hours after sepsis. Do we know what percentage of patients with sepsis nationwide receive the 30 milliliters per kilogram in patients who don't have CHF, ESRD, or cirrhosis? 
And do you think that that finding in your study was due to lack of adherence to the guidelines in general or specific concern for volume overload in those patients? Yes, very good questions. Now, to answer your first question, uh, there really has not been any study that has looked at this specific subgroup of patients, so we don't have much data regarding that. However, what we do know is that in a cohort of all comers, all septic patients, compliance kind of varies between 50 to 60 percent. And um, now, coming on to your second question, so uh, studies have shown that non-compliance with guideline-recommended fluid resuscitation was actually more common for this group of patients with uh, congestive heart failure and stage renal disease and cirrhosis, and uh, which suggests that this concern for volume overload was the primary driver of non-compliance. Now, coming to our study, we found similarly the same thing, that concern for volume overload may have been a big part of non-compliance. And what we did find was another important risk factor that may have been um, lack of early recognition of sepsis that may have also contributed to this. You also mentioned that in addition to decreased resuscitation volume, there was a significant delay in the initiation of crystalloid resuscitation in these patients with CHF, ESRD, and cirrhosis. Do you have a hypothesis on why that is? Uh, yes, just um, uh, as I said uh, on this earlier uh, comment was, I think mainly lack of recognition of sepsis and this concern for volume overload are the two main factors which cause the delay in initiation of crystalloid resuscitation in these patients. Now, you note that other studies have shown that overall positive fluid balance during the total ICU stay is associated with an increase in mortality. What would you say to people who are concerned to follow the initial surviving sepsis campaign guidelines due to this concern for causing a positive fluid balance that may be difficult to reverse, more so than the concern for immediate intubation needs. Yes, absolutely. So, without doubt, overall positive fluid balance is detrimental to patient outcomes, as has been studied multiple times. Uh, we know that it increases mortality, it increases length of stay, it does increase the uh, number of days on the ventilator as well. Uh, however, I think it's uh, very important to distinguish uh, early resuscitation for sepsis compared to the overall positive fluid balance uh, during the entire uh, stay because as our study shows that there appears to be no harm in achieving a resuscitation volume of greater than 30 ml per kilogram in the first six hours uh, following sepsis diagnosis, uh, even in this high-risk patient population. And I would also add that there are have been... Uh, few studies that have also shown that early resuscitation has actually been shown to reduce mortality, again, distinguishing between that early resuscitation period uh, and the fluid balance there versus uh, an overall fluid balance during the whole stay. Thank you. Now, you discussed your hypothesis for why liberal fluid resuscitation in these higher-risk patients did not lead to increased intubation rates. Can you explain your hypothesis for our listeners? Yes. So we hypothesized that the reason we found no difference in intubation between the two groups is that despite this cohort of patients being at risk for fluid overload, 
they have a similar response to vasoplegia with marked reduction in the effective circulating intravascular volume. Now, the shift of the stressed volume to unstressed volume in the early phase of sepsis in these patients may be sufficiently large that fluid resuscitation with uh, 30 ml per kilograms of crystalloids uh, does not lead to pulmonary edema or respiratory failure. Do you have any ideas on how we can improve timing and adherence with the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines? Yes, I think we have uh, a couple of uh, important uh, points. I think treatment bundles uh, have shown quite a bit of promise, uh, particularly in our cohort of interest. And uh, we have one study that has actually shown that uh, treatment bundles have improved compliance to the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines and, as a result, have also shown improved outcomes in this uh, cohort of patients. And secondly, I think early identification tools to identify sepsis early are also important. These tools are cer certainly very sensitive, but I think if we can improve on the specificity, compliance would probably be much better. And what do you think are the future directions of your research? So to our knowledge, uh, our study is the first to have actually looked at the association between fluid resuscitation and respiratory failure in this high-risk population. And our studies tried to answer this clinical question and provide some direction to clinicians. However, to definitively answer this question, I think uh, prospective randomized controlled trials will probably be necessary. Excellent. Now, Dr. Reddy and Dr. Khan, for both of you, if there is one thing that you could have your listeners take away from your research, what point do you want them to remember? So I would say that uh, to our clinicians, please do not anchor on anecdotal experiences or not evidence-based data. Certainly, we know that the comorbidities of uh, heart failure, end-stage renal disease, and cirrhosis do put patients at risk for volume overload. But in the setting of sepsis and septic shock, particularly in early phases, our results show that the guideline recommended early fluid resuscitation should not be omitted in these patients uh, solely for the concern for acute respiratory failure. And again, just to add on to what Dr. Khan said, I think just remembering the pathophysiology of sepsis that we discussed earlier in the vasoplegia, that it makes sense that this population of patients are afforded the, the volume that they need to survive sepsis. Uh, again, early resuscitation has been shown to save lives, and we need to do this across the board. And we're also hoping that the CLOVER study that's underway currently might be able to help shed more light onto this uh, seemingly controversial topic. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much for sharing your time and expertise with us today on the Chess Journal podcast, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in with us. Until next time.